were educated in a white European tradition in grad school. So most of the theories we studied came from Europeans or white United States theorists, and they were clearly developed to be helpful to white patients suffering from various disorders within white cultures. This is the last Tuesday of the month. We're kicking back with an episode of Shrinks After Hours, where Cindy and I talk more informally about the issues that concern us. I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. And I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. Welcome in. Have you noticed, Cindy, that a lot of diagnostic terminology gets thrown around on social media? For a while, everyone was busy diagnosing the previous president. Luckily, There's less of that happening now that he's out of office, but still diagnosis is a tricky thing. Even when it's just within our profession and with other mental health providers, it can definitely be misused even unintentionally. Oh yeah, that's right, Julie. Labeling people has its pros and cons. It can be useful at times, but harmful at other times. That's why today we're talking about diagnosis bias. You might be thinking right now, but I'm not a mental health professional. What do I care? Unless you are one. (laughs) Everyone should care because it can impact people in our communities. Policies are decided around it. You yourself could even be affected. And like most of what we've been talking about lately on this podcast, there's racism involved. But let's begin by looking into the issue. Racism. Mm-hmm. Racism can affect people's health and implicit bias in mental health care can make that worse. Deepening mental health issues instead of helping to heal vulnerable people. Research shows that implicit bias is prevalent among healthcare and mental health providers. Not surprising, they're humans. There are negative stereotypes, stigmatizing attitudes toward groups of people usually held at an unconscious level by mental health professionals, because usually they they have good intentions, that's why they're in the field, so it's not even conscious. But, you know, people haven't worked hard to examine their own biases, and sometimes even people who have still have them. (laughs) And then in appointments with a person from a certain group, like a person of color, someone from the LGBTQ community, a drug-addicted person, or someone with some accent that triggers the unconscious in negative ways, you know, that prejudice can be brought out and the provider might be completely unaware, but the patient or client experience it pretty clearly. Right, so things like racism, sexism, and xenophobia already affect access to care. True, it's much harder for people of color to get to providers for a lot of reasons. There are no practitioners or hospitals or office suites in poor underserved areas. There are financial barriers to care, work-related barriers, the person can't get time off to go. There are stigmas in communities where people believe that you shouldn't talk about your private business or you can't trust medical professionals, maybe especially if they're white. Just getting in can be hard to do though. Right, and the care itself can then cause more problems, which is 
why we went through our own therapy and supervision for years. Not that it gets rid of it completely, but you come to understand where your challenges might be and you can account for them so that then you can work against them consciously. Yeah, right. I mean, that seems like an ethical responsibility to me, but um, many providers don't believe they have biases. They think they're aware and enlightened. Um, I don't really like that attitude. It's better to always examine, always look, just not believe you're above it or you've done all the work or something like that. Also, if you really have some bias against a certain type of person or group, you should know it so that then you don't, you know not to treat them. Referring them to someone else will give them the care they need and deserve. Although even here, our attitude or bias against someone can affect who or where we believe the appropriate referral is. Right, so for example, like if you think an African-American patient or client should see an African-American provider, well, okay, maybe they should. It's not really clear that they have to do that. But even if you think they should, it might not be so easy to find that provider because in our culture, there isn't enough opportunity for a lot of people of color. Our education system holds them back. I mean, and, and basically, who are we to decide exactly who's best for someone else to work with? Yeah, what we also didn't learn in grad school was the implicit bias that's baked into the profession itself. For example, with diagnoses, which is what we're talking about today. This isn't intentionally biased. It's just baked in like a lot of things we now see. The racism is baked in. It's in the history and makeup of the profession. It's not just out of the consciousness of each practitioner, which it can be, but it's also beyond the consciousness of the profession as a whole. It makes sense if you think about it. The same biases that we're finding if we dig into assumptions about holidays, monuments, police behavior, education, you name it really. Why wouldn't it be in professional assumptions too? Of course it would. Diagnosis and treatment rely heavily on provider discretion. So bias can be a real problem. There's a couple of major problems with it. Implicit bias can shape how someone views certain behaviors. So for example, the fear a black man expresses about walking down the street could be viewed as a consequence of racial profiling by one therapist and as paranoia by someone who doesn't get it. And this can affect the therapeutic relationship and the whole course of treatment, who you think they should be referred to. Even a referral based on these kinds of misconceptions can affect future treatment. Is this guy traumatized or is he paranoid? Good point. I know, in an old office, this makes me think about this office I used to work in where we saw kids on the third floor of a Trinity, which is like a room on every floor in Center City, Philly. There's a lot of those. Really cute space. But anyway, I always remember this little black boy I took up there to the third floor to introduce him to his therapist. And the first thing he said to us was, if someone comes up here after you, how do you get out? And fortunately, there was a small window we could point to that I guess you could kind of fit through and you could climb through, although nobody ever had to do that. But And we had never even thought of that, but it made him feel at least there was potential option and potential safety. And we didn't take him as, you know, like paranoid schizophrenic or something. We understood that he had some trauma. Wow. Yeah. Just thinking about that. Here's a kid who lives his trauma all the time, always afraid of being chased, trapped. That's so sad. And then you can only hope that a therapist seeing a child like that 
would be extra sensitive to his need for safety and, and provide a lot of reassurance and not judge his behavior as diagnosable so quickly. And that's often a problem because black boys, for example, are diagnosed later than white boys with autism. Because when a young black boy acts out in school, it's often interpreted as an issue of opposition. He's angry, he's oppositional, he has a conduct disorder versus, you know, he has any other kind of issue. Therapists often look at the behavior in black people and judge it without looking deeper into the root causes. I mean, so therapists have to be careful not to diagnose what's normal behavior, like a, a child's terror about being stuck in a room, but they also have to be aware that a diagnosis is important to think through. And obviously, you know, you have to look at root causes. I mean, there's so much implicit bias. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> I just have to add that I personally don't love the DSM-5 or whatever number, our professional Bible for labeling disorders, the diagnostic manual. I don't love labeling people anyway. I don't love the speed with which people are eager to label other people. I get the idea. It helps with research to have everyone agree on what a diagnostic category means, what makes it up. It gets services and sometimes gets services paid for. It clarifies discussion between professionals. It is helpful for some communication purposes, of course. But still, I think a lot of the time it depersonalizes people. I mean, you hear professionals say she's a borderline, not she's someone with a trauma history who devised ways to survive that no longer serve her. So her behaviors fall into the category of borderline. I know that's a lot more to say, but I just don't love the labels, you know, and obviously there's a lot of bias that those labels get, get used for. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's a lot to say, but it's important to say. A lot of mental health issues are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. I don't like labeling them either. Even with standardized diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5, therapists more likely underdiagnose affective or mood disorders and overdiagnose psychotic disorders among patients from marginalized groups. It's so subjective. Not understanding these kinds of differences, reactions to oppression and trauma, also results in more minorities in prisons. Right. And again, they don't get help there for their mental health issues. Instead, they're punished and their mental health issues get worse being in prison. So, okay, there's an implicit bias. That's the problem. Well, the other big problem is the diagnoses themselves were developed originally by white men and about white men and also about people that they didn't you know, respect that are beneath them, that are somehow less powerful and therefore less good. Yeah. A lot of the time we have to diagnose in order for insurance to pay at all. Right. And this increases access. So we do it, but we have to use the DSM or our ICD-10 to do it. And both were created by white men. So true. The diagnoses were therefore have implicit bias against women and everyone who isn't a white male. Remember, I'm sure you do, when homosexuality was considered a mental illness in an early version of the DSM. I mean, it isn't anymore. I mean, it does evolve, but obviously bias is baked in, you're right. So we now have to take a look, even at our professional education. I think a lot of us, I hope most of us, go into this profession to help people. Does that mean all people to everyone? Or 
Are we a part of a mental health system that systematically works against certain people, even if that's due to lack of understanding? Uh, when you say that, Cindy, I think, well, yeah, we were educated in a white European tradition in grad school. So most of the theories we studied came from Europeans or white United States theorists, and they were clearly developed to be helpful to white patients suffering from various disorders within white cultures. So, hmm. Right, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, indigenous people, African-Americans, people from so many different cultures have so many of their own different ways of knowing and understanding, of taking care of their own and of healing. So then white men moved in, wherever they moved in, everywhere, and took over every system of care. So of course they don't look at systemic oppression, cultural trauma, or differences in vulnerable communities. Right, they're not even thinking about them. It's not even on their radar. Suffering or trauma caused by oppression is passed down through generations, it's intergenerational. Many people of color are feeling that trauma. It's not clear that the DSM, I mean, it is kind of clear that the DSM does not adequately address this issue, which is a major issue in the mental health of many, many people in this country. Providers trained in our white educational system could very easily be unaware of that kind of intergenerational transmission of trauma. They might know about other kinds, but they don't think about generations of being a person of color in this country and what that really means for trauma, for having that trauma carried from one generation to the other. And, and definitely, I know we're not educated in how to treat it. Right, so obviously the mental health system doesn't work for everyone. And in some ways, because we have to use them, diagnoses are at the base of that system. Well, really, no wonder so many people of color are suspicious of the medical profession altogether and in including the mental health system. And they also, and they feel left out of it because they are literally. Yeah, it kind of even gets worse than being left out. I mean, would you believe there was a diagnosis back in 1851? I don't even know how to pronounce it, but something like drapetomania, which was the disease that caused enslaved people to keep running away. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, they had a label? for people who are trying to escape slavery. That's insane. It's not a mental illness. This is an embarrassment to all mental health professionals. I know, I saw this in a paper my daughter just wrote in grad school and I looked it up because I never heard of it, but it's true. Some white male surgeon who is also a psychologist down in Louisiana started diagnosing enslaved people with what he wrote was a common disease among black people in the South and his report about this diagnosis about that made slaves run away was actually published in the New Orleans Medical and Surgical Journal. Wow. It never became an official diagnosis like in the DSM-5 or the DSM, because the men who came up with those diagnoses were way more subtle than that. But you get the picture. This guy was educated in medicine and had some authority and came up with this. And the profession at the time gave it some credibility. You don't have to be a psychologist to know this is crazy. This level of crazy should be the diagnosis, not the other way around. Yeah, and that guy was a psychologist. <laughs> yeah. And a, yeah, a medical doctor and a psychologist. That's, that is crazy. Mm. Labeling people for trying to save their own lives from slavery, that's crazy. We need to develop a diagnosis for authoritative white men who make up diagnoses for oppressed people that deny that they should feel oppressed and want to escape. 
just off the top of my head, I can think of a few names, but I won't say them because I would like to keep our podcast in countries where certain words can't be used. L-O-L. <laughs> also, it didn't stop there. After the Civil War traumatized a lot of Americans and eventually moved into the Civil Rights Movement, there were doctors diagnosing Southern Black Americans with a subtype of schizophrenia that included a desire to advocate for one's own rights. Really, same idea. I can't believe it, but I suppose if you call someone schizophrenic, that's a perfect opportunity to take away all of their rights. At least you could back then. It's still not the greatest now, but... At least some Black psychiatrists tried to um, counter with getting extreme bigotry classified as a mental disorder, but that didn't go over. Wow. <laughs> wow. That, I think about today right now with these crazy people, you know, who stormed the Capitol and who um, are just so racist, you know, the march in Charlottesville, they do need a, some kind of diagnostic label for that. It's a good plan, although in the Psychiatric Times in uh, May 1st, 2007, Dr. Ronald Pies wrote that those who are against making bigotry an official diagnosis feel that, quote, it's a mistake to pathologize a widespread form of human stupidity. In some ways, I think that minimizes it too much. It's not just stupid, it's dangerous. Yeah, and you could argue it has paranoia in it, it's compulsive, it leads to bad behavior. I think it's actually a great idea to diagnose highly resistant bigotry. I love it. I I wanna see that in the DSM. Should that be a mental illness or a crime? Mm. That's a complicated question because a lot of crime comes out of mental illness. But crime is the behavior. The bigotry is the mental illness. Yeah, true, true. So much trauma is caused by bigotry and oppression and both affect mental health. How could they not? Self-esteem issues, internalized racism, fearfulness, suspiciousness, many things that we see in people who have just been oppressed get turned around and used against them by our racist society as a way to, guess what, keep them oppressed. It's our job to help people pass those assumptions, the oppressed and the oppressors. It's true that we have knowledge and strength that people who come to see us need for us to hold for them when they come to see us. But who knows how and why something hurts more than people experiencing it. Maybe people in communities should decide what is painful and how they're suffering rather than having a system decide for them. I really believe we have to trust people in their own knowledge and experience. Absolutely. We have to start where our patients or clients are. We have to have the humility to know that we can't assume that we know their experience and we can't assume we know what they need or that we even understand them, not right away. That's our whole job is to learn to understand them. We have to work with them for an alliance. We have to gain trust. We have to ask questions acknowledge mistakes, accept blame for it. Like if I make a mistake, I have to apologize. We have to acknowledge our own biases in order to gain trust. We have to make it clear that our job, our goal is to learn, to know more. We have to be caring, humane, interested, or honestly, we shouldn't be doing the work we do. Yeah, those reasons are why I really like our work. Me too. You know, you have to look at internal stuff, family of origin stuff, and beyond that, community, relationship, and contextual stuff. Also, we have to stop looking down on other ways of practice that worked before the white men took it all over. Hmm. Since we're aiming to be anti-racist, we have to look at all aspects of what we do. 
We can take action and we can unlearn unhelpful or negative things and learn new things. I'm always looking for gaps in my personal awareness and practices. It's ongoing probably forever. Mm -hmm. And we also need to go bigger to recognize cultural, societal, even ancestral influences, including oppressive systems. If we don't continue to question ourselves, feel curious about what we don't know and learn about the people we're trying to be helpful to, there's no way we can be helpful to them. And when we're suggesting resources for healing, ideally therapists will recommend methods that are more inclusive when it makes sense. Even things like indigenous spirit work, in addition to some of the more now well-known types of work, such as yoga or acupuncture, more holistic healing approaches. There are a lot of approaches that worked for people before white men took over and made only their studied treatments available, basically stigmatizing anything else, even though the other things worked for entire groups and cultures. For could be thousands of years even. <laughs> I know therapists who've integrated more of that stuff into their practices. There are newer practices. I think of um, EMDR as one where it was developed by a woman. It has some more holistic philosophy to it. I'm sure there are lots of others that they just feel like they address female concerns more completely. Yeah, I think the holistic uh, therapies are really important. Our modern mental health system is based on a very white-based model of what mental health is and what it looks like. It's all been heavily influenced and controlled by the dominant white heteronormative patriarchal gender binary narrative. That was a lot to say. It was. <laughs> We don't want to be part of upholding ideas about other people and treatment of them that's based on systemic privilege or harmful mental health practices. Agreed. Thanks for listening today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at shrinksonthird. Until next time, take care.